I haven't met you, like Phil said, my name is Lydia, and I'm a junior at Bethel. And so uh, one of my things that I'm a part of on campus is I'm also a runner. Um, I'm a creative writing major as well. And then I'm a track and cross country runner for the Royals, along with some of my roommates who are here. (laughs) And so today I'm going to be talking about Romans chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. So if you want to turn there. Um, But while you're turning there, I want to tell you a quick story that I promise relates to this passage. But um, our coaches talk a lot about um, how races are made up of a bunch of small decisions that are strung together. And so when I start a race, you have the decision of whether you're going to say, it's going to be a great race, I can do this, I'm strong, and move in with the pack and get started really well. Or I can decide that it's been a long week and I think I'm tired and I'm actually not going to push myself as hard as I could. And so a couple weeks ago, I ran the 5K, which for context, if you're not a track runner, is 12 and a half laps. And this is not my normal race necessarily, but it's the longest race I run in track. And so I started out and I tried to follow the race plan with coach that we'd talked about. And so during certain laps, he'll yell at me and say, okay, I need this lap to be courageous because that's one of my favorite words. So I tell him to yell that at me all the time. And so he's like, okay, I need a brave lap. I need a courageous lap. And there's 12 and a half of them. So not every single one is going to be courageous. Let me tell you. <laughs> but So as I was going on, I make good decisions and poor decisions throughout the race. And ultimately both will affect how the race turns out. So if someone passes me and he's like, go with that girl. And I'm like, mm, you know, I just don't feel it right now. <laughs> then I may not get the time that I want, which definitely happened at certain parts of that race. But then toward the end of that race, I decided, okay, I'm getting a little tired. I'm getting discouraged. And there's only three laps left. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to break it up. So I'm going to take it 200 meters by 200 meters. And so if, again, if you don't know much about track, that's half a lap. And so I'm just taking it half a lap by half a lap. And slowly that helped me to make more positive decisions and finish out the race well. And so ultimately, as a runner, um, those good decisions or those bad decisions add up to whether or not I have a good race and I get a personal best or whether I have a not-so-great race and it doesn't go according to plan. But I've been a track and cross-country runner for nine years now, and so a lot of my decisions that I make are grounded in the experiences that I've had and my identity as a runner. So how does this relate to this passage? So basically, as Christians, as people, as humans, we all make decisions every single day. And this decision can be choosing the apple instead of the cookie or vice versa, or choosing to tell a lie or choosing to tell the truth, choosing to get upset with someone or choosing to show grace. There's all these decisions as soon as we wake up in the morning, we have all these choices that we have to make. And so ultimately, these choices, as we move throughout our day and throughout our lives, begin to shape our identity and our reality as um, the people of God and as humans. And so the good news is, is that after Jesus left earth, he sent his spirit, which is what this passage talks about. And the spirit empowers us to make better decisions and offer us the ability to make those good choices that will empower us to look more and more like Jesus in this world and let our choices be driven by our identity in Christ. And so as you turn to this passage, um, I'm going to read it in a second, but I want to give a little bit of background on Romans as a whole. Um, and so according to some scholarly information that I found, um, Paul wrote to the church in Rome in about AD 57 to 58 from Corinth, and as he was preparing for his visit to Jerusalem. 
His reasoning is to introduce himself and his message to the church in Rome before he visits them, and he's making a case for the Christian faith. You can kind of think of it as like the world's first biblical commentary. (laughs) Um, And so he's talking to a mainly Gentile Christian audience, and there's also Jewish Christians in the mix. And so part of his reasoning is he's using the letter to address different cultural tensions in the way that they express their faith as both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, because that looked a little differently. And so one scholar wrote that what the Roman Christians needed was what we could call ethnic reconciliation and cross-cultural sensitivity to Christ. So now I'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit, and I'll read Romans 8, 1 through 17, so that you can get a little bit of the context for this passage. So Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is a pretty powerful statement to start this out. So the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set their mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's pretty crazy when you think about it. Like the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living inside of us as Christians. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And so I want to talk a little bit about how Christ informs our decision making through the spirit that he has given to us. So I'm going to look at, um, start by looking at verse 14, and I'm in the NRSV, by the way. Um, if you have a little tran- different translation, it might sound a little different. But for me, it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And so the word for led in Greek um, is agontai, and in the case that it's in, which happens to be the dative case, um, it could be most naturally rendered as that of being constrained by a compelling force or surrendering to an overmastering compulsion, hence the NEB's appropriate rendering, moved by the Spirit. And this is pointed out by the word biblical commentary. And so the Spirit within us is a compelling force or we're surrendering to an overmastering compulsion, which is, I thought, a pretty interesting rendering of what we think of of the Spirit. 
So now I'm going to look at Romans 10, 8, 10 through 11, which says, But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. And so this fresh spirit that we have been given was foreshadowed actually in the Old Testament um, because, as you know, the Bible is a very united story and God's had a plan since the very beginning that involved bringing Christ into the scene. So in Ezekiel 36, 26, again in the NRSV, it says, A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so this just represents what this passage in Romans, again, is talking about, that God's desired this connection with us from the very beginning. And so, again, this is that same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that now when we accept Jesus into our lives and ask him to be our Lord and Savior and commit our lives to him, this is that spirit that comes to dwell in us. And so it's kind of when you think about back to running metaphors, because as a runner, I really love running metaphors. (laughs) Um, And Paul did, too, actually. So... Um, when you think of it, it's like those kids who have those all-American parents who, like, were national champions. And so they're born, and they just immediately have these, like, crazy running genes. And so they can run this crazy fast mile time while their, uh, you know, fellow teammates are working really, really hard to get a similar time. And so they have these genes that get them halfway there. And so this is kind of like that spirit that dwells within us. It gets us a certain way there, but then we have to choose to act on it, similarly to how they have to choose to act on those genes they've been given. So we must choose which identity we are going to act on. But Paul, in this passage, um, encourages us not to act on that old identity that we had before we were in Christ Jesus. So our actions should not, therefore, be driven by our old identity, but our new identity. So now I'm going to look at Romans 8, 12 through 13 again, which says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so one scholar wrote about verse 12, which can also talk about an obligation instead of being debtors. There's different translations, but it's the same word in Greek. Um, It says, here Paul reflects the important correction that he makes to the simple Jewish idea of two ages. No longer is the transition from one to another a sharp one-time event. The new age has dawned with the coming of Christ, and believers enjoy the benefit of that age or realm even now. But the old age has not disappeared. It has been judged and defeated, but will not be finally vanquished until the return of Christ in glory. With all the blessings we have received, therefore, believers still have a battle to fight. Sin and the flesh can exert a powerful influence on us, an influence that must be resisted. And so another scholar talks about how those who live by the flesh, so they live according to their own strength and not according to the spirit of Christ, those are the ones who will die. But those who live according to Christ's spirit who lives within us as Christians will be resurrected by him to the fullness of life one day. So this death that Paul talks about, one commentator kind of explains, and this is my own paraphrase, but it's a spiritual corruption that intensifies, we give in to fleshly desires, and may even lead to physical death. 
So while we have the power to resist um, the choice of a donut over an apple or the choice of telling the truth over telling a lie, we don't always do so. Similar to how in a race I have the right decision that I could go with a girl and push myself or I could decide to just hang back and kind of do my own thing. So uh, this is the already not yet of our faith, that we have this empowerment by the Holy Spirit, but ultimately we're still living in a fallen world. Our sinful nature died at the cross, but God's spirit that lives within us is making us more and more like Christ as we trust in him. The little decisions that we make that are positive grow us closer to him, similar to how in a race, the more positive decisions that I make shows shows how much I trust my coach and the racing plan that we have created. Therefore, as followers of Christ, our decisions should be rooted in this new identity that we have. So now I'm going to look again at Romans 8, 14 through 15, which says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. For you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father. And actually, I'm just going to finish out 16 to 17. It is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And so I want to kind of talk about a verse that coincides with this in Ephesians, um, which is Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, again in the NRSV. And it says, In him also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. So it says, we're marked with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And this seal, according to one scholar, is the believer's reception of the Spirit is a sign that they belong to God in a special sense, that they have been stamped with the character of their owner. They belong to him now, but they are also protected until he takes complete possession of him, which would be at the end of time. And so this is similar to how in a race, our coach can look across the track, and even if he's far away, he can see the white and blue of the Bethel Royals uniforms and see which athletes are his in a race. And similarly, God looks across the world, and he can see which children are his based on our spirit that is indwelling within us, or his spirit that is indwelling within us. So one commentator, um, now I'm going to look at the idea of adoption, One commentator points out that this idea of adoption in the New Testament is only used in Pauline literature. And another commentator talks about how this adoption made sense to the hearers of Romans um, in the Roman world. So Roman adoption, which could take place at any age, canceled all previous debts and relationships. And this was the part that I thought was so cool. Defining the new son wholly in terms of his new relationship to his father, whose heir he thus become. Another commentator states how our status as believers moves not from just slave to freedman, but freedman to son and daughter, which is pretty cool when you think about it. So God isn't working for our downfall as a slave master, but instead he's working for our redemption and our, um, just our sanctification as a father. And so as a father, it's not just him moving his spirit within us, making us do his will, but instead he's encouraging us to do the right thing. And then we, as sons and daughters, have choices whether or not we're going to act on his encouragement and his spirit um, dwelling within us. So similarly, during a race, coach can yell, have a courageous lap, and I can go, okay. (laughs) And I may or may not do that. So there's that encouragement, but it's our choice to act on it.
And so now I'm going to look again at verse 16 and 17, which says, Is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So one commentary explains as a legal act, Roman adoption had to be attested by witnesses. So the spirit here is attesting that God adopts believers, attesting witness that God adopts believers in Jesus as his own children. So now let's look at Paul's reference to Abba, Father, which, as you can remember, is something that Jesus called the Father himself. So one commentator writes that Abba generally connotates intimate relationship and suggests close familial union of believers with their God. So God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we are his children. So it's like a uniform marking us as his own. So you can think about how our own family patterns of decision-making influence our own decision-making. So some families might have patterns of really good decisions of, you know, maybe a hard work ethic or a pull towards higher education or a pull towards um, prayer or different things, while other families might have patterns of alcoholism or dysfunction. But chances are... um, most families have a little bit of both. And so we can either flee from these familial identities or we can choose to embrace them. Similarly, as God's children, we are no longer slaves to the sinful patterns and dysfunction of our lives before God, but we are now adopted into a new family and a new identity that brings us relational comfort and also encouragement to live out this identity and make the right decisions. So therefore, our decisions should be driven by our new identity in Christ. And my decision to keep moving in a race and be courageous is off because coach is telling me to do so and reminding me of that courage that's within me. But in Christ, the training has already been complete. All those long hours were put in by Jesus at the cross. And now by his spirit, we could just walk out what he has already done for us. We get to walk it out by his spirit within us, and we have those great spiritual genes like having all-American parents that take us part of the way there. So what does it really mean to live as the children of God? Most of us, if we've grown up at the church, have probably heard this all our lives, or maybe if you're new to the church, this is something you're hearing um, relatively for the first time. But if you look at your life, you'll probably realize that you make a lot of decisions based on your identity already. As parents, you make decisions about the size of the house that you have and the size of the car that you drive and the career that you have based on your family. And then um, if you're a musician, you make the decision to practice regularly so that you can succeed, same as we do in athletics. All of our worldly identities give us choices to make. So our decisions are therefore driven by these identities, but as we make decisions, we can ask ourselves which form of our identity is this choice driven by. So ultimately, what if our decisions were shaped more by our identity in Christ than by our worldly identities? What would that look like? So Paul is calling the Roman church and us as Christians today to remember that our identity as children of God should inform our behavior and our decision-making, even amidst this fallen world. We are obligated to put to death the misdeeds of the body in order to truly live. But the good news is we don't have to do this by ourselves. Not only has God given us his spirit to indwell within us, but he's also given us each other. And so I actually had a great example of this during the week, which is also another running example to continue the theme. But on Tuesday, we had a really hard workout, and I finished a rep, which is a repetition. And so it was like 400 meters, which is one lap around the track. And I didn't hit the time that I wanted or that I was supposed to hit. So immediately you could see on my face that I was just starting to critique myself and beat myself up. And I was like, oh, I looked at my watch, and I was like, dang it, you know. 
And there were some sprinters who were sitting beside the track stretching. And one of them immediately cries out. She goes, Lydia, you're awesome. And it was so cute and so encouraging. But at the same time, it was just like, okay, deep breath. Like, this is not who I am. Like, this time, like, it was only a second or two off. Like, it'll be okay. And so then the rest of the repetitions I was able to hit because I was grounded in that identity. And so, just like children in a family can look at their siblings and realize that they're part of a larger family, we can be reminded as we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ that we're part of a larger family and we're not doing this on our own. And we can do what Hebrews, it talks about in Hebrews 10.24, and spur one another on unto good works. So would that change how we interact with those around us if we lived out our identity as children of God and more than our worldly identities? If we gave ourselves grace, unlike what I did after that repetition, wouldn't we be more graceful to those around us? Would the temptation to eat unhealthy be less if we saw our bodies as temples of the Holy Ghost and beautifully created? This is something that I'm still working through, and this is something that we'll all still be working through this side of eternity. This is something that we'll never stop working through until then. But the good news is, is that at Heirs, we have received the first fruits of a promise that will come into full fruition when we do reach eternity. But in the in-between, what does it look like for us to walk as children of God and make our decisions based on our identity in Christ more than as our worldly identities. Because the more we make steps towards making our decisions look more like Christ through his spirit indwelling within us, the more the world around us will see a fuller picture of Jesus represented in us.